and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Well, good morning, church family, family and friends here. Man, we have a big day ahead of us. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. It is good to be in the house of the Lord, meaning it is good to be worshiping God with you, my family, my friends. So as we get started here, I just got to say there's a lot going on today. In fact, uh, if you don't know, we're a part of uh, a, a denomination, Baptist, Southern Baptist, and today we host the Longs Peak Baptist Association. Now, their offices are always here, but that means that uh, 40 plus churches, their pastors will be gathering for their annual meeting today, and, and our band's going to lead them, and uh, one of our own, uh, Wade Williams, is going to preach for them. I can't wait uh, to see how that uh, uh, how that goes. It's just going to be a wonderful time. So I just want you to remember we're part of a much larger church that spans the world. So uh, by the way, if I don't know you, my name is Paul Trimble. I'm the senior pastor here. I, if you want to go ahead and get your Bible out, turn to the New Testament book of John. John, you guys, we're in John, uh, the Gospel of John, sometimes we call it. We'll get there in just a few minutes in chapter 5. But when I said a special day uh, here at Bent Tree, there's a couple of other reasons. First, if you are a Christ follower, we are celebrating communion at the end of our time today, just after my preaching time, or what we sometimes refer to the Lord's Supper. And two is that as we reach the end of chapter 5 today in this series, that's just amazing uh, that we've gotten there. God has taught us, at least he's taught me so much as we have just carefully kind of plotted our way through, mind some of the deep riches of this book that God has for us. Not to say that somehow we got to the bottom of what we could mind, but we did a lot, right? In fact, this is this today is week 60 of this series so far. It's hard to believe. Now, that's not 60 consecutive weeks because uh, we do shorter series from time to time and take these breaks for a season and we'll come back so, uh, to this series that we've titled So That You May Believe. And the third big thing that I want to share with you is that beginning next week, we began a five-week series uh, that we're calling the Bent Tree Discipleship pathway. Uh, it's going to be a great time. I can't wait. This is a very special kind of series for us and a very important one as well. We're not, uh, most of the time we're, we're going through a book, a whole book of the Bible, one verse at a time. And these next five weeks of the series is still going to be based in scripture for sure. But what we're going to do is preach through what discipleship means based on the Bible. And you'll see what I mean, but, but if you're part of Bent Tree family, meaning you are a member here, make it a priority to be here all five weeks of the series. At the same time, if you're not a member or you're just a friend of Bent Tree and you're thinking about like, maybe this is your home, uh, your church family, making this your church family, come for sure for that, to make sure you're here for this series because you're going to learn so much because this is all about how we do life as believers, how we grow in faith individually, and it's how we help each other grow. 
as a body. It's about how we actually love the people in our lives, serve them by helping each other along this discipleship pathway. Now, this new series is about how we live our life outside this place as well. At work, at school, at our neighborhood, on the sports field, just in society. And at its core, this series coming up is going to help us grow into mature Christians. And at the same time, in that process, how it will help others along that discipleship pathway as we hike that thing. This isn't just a preaching series, but launching a new way of doing ministry. It's that big for us. Kind of a new vision for this place. And we've been working on this for a couple of years now. uh, and, And no joke. Because we have put together tools for us as believers to use in individual lives and helping us grow ourselves, but also helping others grow, helping you to disciple those in your family. Now, why do this now? Why take this, this break in this series of John? Well, here's the deal. Bentry is really beginning to grow in two big ways. Number one, we're beginning to see some deeper spiritual growth in you. The individual members of Bent Tree Church. You make up the local church, this local church. But number two, we're also beginning to see um, more numbers of people coming overall. You see both of those, don't you, uh, here at Bent Tree. Here's what I think is happening is that we've been praying for this for a very long time, especially over the last three years of the craziness that we have felt and, and seen in our country, but, but also from the very beginning, back to 2010, but also getting word out, uh, word is really starting to get out, I guess you should say, about this church that sticks to preaching to biblical truth and not going light. And then at the same time, having a wonderful worship time that's not the frozen chosen. Uh, We worship here without restraint here. We call it extravagant worship without restraint. As well, word is getting out that relational discipleship is a core value to us. And people are wanting to be a part of that. Doing life together. Lots of Lots of new folks are coming. They're joining with us. If you're new, you're not alone. We're so glad you're here, part of this, this place. And I think God is, is about to add to our number, don't you? But the total number coming, that's cool to know. But at the end of the day, the goal for Christ followers is not that we have a big church. No. I mean, I'm not against that, but... It's to grow each and every one of us individually into all that God intends for us to be. Amen? That's what we want. And and when we see that happening, then we begin to see what the body of Christ can do as we minister together. The, The world is going downhill fast. Can we all agree on that? I mean, it's, it's fast. Jesus is building his church to reach this messed up world that we're a part of. Well, I can't wait to show you this thing. You guys are going to be blessed for sure, but you have to wait till next week. Uh, let's go to our passage today. This is going to be powerful. It is Jesus. Uh, we're going to finish up John chapter five, unless I come back to it. And Jesus is revealing some serious stuff, some big stuff to his hearers. If you're able, would you please stand with me in honor of this main passage being read today, starting with... Verse 37, continuing through 47. 
This is Jesus speaking. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his, his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote, about, wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you as a, as a family, a group of believers and friends coming to you, God, that we want to know you. We want to grow. Would you open up these words, God, to our hearts? Would you change us with these words of Jesus? God, would you prepare us uh, through this to speak to us right now the deep things you want us to know? It is in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Although we began the passage in verse 37, for context, we're going to really kind of drill down starting in verse 39. So if you want to get that Bible out of your lap, in this last section of John chapter 5, Jesus is still giving this long discourse that he's been giving the entire time or most of the time of chapter 5 to this very large crowd gathered around. Now, for you just joining us, the crowd is made up of three big groups. Well, three groups. One of them is not very big, but powerful. The first uh, group are his disciples, those people that follow him from place to place. They camp with him, they go. It's not just the 12, it's probably several hundred. But then there's this giant crowd of Jewish people, just regular folk from the city. They, they've heard of the miracles, the preaching. They've heard that this might be the Messiah. And all the first, although the first two groups there hear what Jesus is saying, Jesus is really responding and addressing this third group of people, the very smallest. That second group had probably been in a thousand or a thousand. So it's a very large group. But this last group, just a few guys. These are the religious leaders of the Jews. And to say these guys are upset with Jesus' teaching at this point would be an understatement for sure. I mean, they want to have him killed when the conversation started simply for healing a man on the Sabbath. But now, as we've learned through John chapter 5, Jesus uses this as an opportunity then to begin to reveal who he really is. We, we call this the study of Christ, Christology. And it's not only about Jesus individually, but also how Jesus kind of fits into the Trinity, the Godhead of God the Father, God the Son, and God the 
Holy Spirit. But now in this last section, Jesus turns his attention back on these religious leaders. And in doing that, what we find is that in verse 37 through 47, begins to reveal one of the most significant summaries of the importance of the gospel, the scripture. Jesus confronts these religious leaders right in front of everybody about these religious leaders' unbelief. Now this is amazing to all those who are listening to him because these guys, these leaders, they are the head of God's people. On the surface, they looked to be the part of believing God, but they didn't. They even said they believed, but they didn't. The way they dressed, the way they spent their time, even from their own mouths of what they said, they said they believed, but they didn't. And what's crazy about this is this is the part that should send shivers kind of down your spine, is that they thought they were right with God, these religious leaders, and yet there is the Son of God essentially telling them to their face, you are enemies of God. Now let's dig in, shall we? You ready? Get your shovel out. He confronts these guys right off the bat when he says in verse 39 and 40, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now the gospel reveals where someone's heart really is in relationship to God. That's what the gospel does. It's called a stumbling block. It says, do you believe or not believe? Look at verse 40 here. He says, you refuse to come. These guys read, uh, they read about life and say they want eternal life, but when the doorway to eternal life is literally standing before them, they refuse it. They go, we're not going to follow him. Now, these religious leaders are the very cream of the crop of the nation in the study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Quite literally, they spend their time studying the Scriptures. They more than likely have the Torah memorized, or what we call the Pentateuch. Let me see if I can show you. They've got this part memorized word for word. But they also probably have, let's see, this part memorized. All of it. What I'm saying, these guys are not dummies, but they're missing something. And what is, it's important to realize what they're missing because we don't want to miss the same thing, right? We don't want to miss this. These guys are so learned in the scriptures, but they are enemies of Jesus. And therefore they are enemies of God, God, the father. Why is that? How could they be so far off and know so much? Well, it helps to remember what the purpose of the scripture is. Is it simply to record God's interaction with mankind throughout time? No. While it does record history, that's not its main function, is it? So is it to reveal truth to mankind? I mean, we want truth, right? And it does reveal truth with a capital T. Now, this is going to sound strange, but hold on, hold on. Scripture's main focus, I want you to write this down. Its main primary function, here it is. What is it? 
the primary purpose of Scripture is to point men and women to Christ. That's what Scripture is about. The primary purpose of Scripture is to point men and women to Christ. Scripture does this a number of different ways, doesn't it? History that reveals, well, how bad mankind is and how holy God is. In other words, it reveals our character pretty quick. But more importantly, it reveals God's character, his attributes, his nature, what he is like. And you could think of the Bible as like a signpost, like the the sign on Interstate 25, I, I passed under it last night and in our exit. You know, when you're coming up from Denver or coming down from Cheyenne and you see sign for Rocky Mountain National Park. Now, if you want to go to the Rocky Mountain National Park, you don't stop under that green sign and get your picnic basket out and dodge cars to have a picnic, right? That sign is not the park. It points to the park. You follow the signs to the real thing. You enjoy your picnic there in the beauty of the mountains. The Bible is similar. What a gift we have in this. This is a nasty place where we live. Sin, tears, pain, death, evil are in this place. But thank God we have the words of God because one thing in them we find out that this is not our eternal home. But even bigger, the Bible reveals how we can get to and find our eternal home. This is a signpost. Jesus is confronting these religious dudes with this truth. He says, look, you know everything about the scriptures, but you missed what they're pointing to, which is me. And not just that you missed it, like you got confused somehow. No, Jesus says it's something much, much worse. He says it's much darker in you. It's your sin. He's saying you refuse to see these words of Scripture are pointing to me. But in doing that, what does Jesus say they're missing? Life. He says you're missing life. Now, interesting. What does Jesus mean when he says they're missing life? Real life. The way it was intended, Jesus is making an astounding claim. He is saying that what you are living now, guys, is not life. Don't mistake it, he said. What you're living now is death, and you don't even know it's death. You play like it's life. Jesus is saying, look, I am the life. The way it was created to be before mankind sinned through the first man, Adam. Jesus is offering them life now in him. New life, eternal life. Life like he offered back to the woman at the well. Do you remember in chapter 4? Life right now. Eternal life starting now in this age. I'm going to offer you life. She, he says, I'm going to give you living water so you'll never thirst again. But these religious dudes are choosing not to believe Jesus. By the way, if you think back to chapter 4, I find this incredibly interesting. Jesus and his disciples go to Sychar into Samaria where no Jewish people would go, especially not men. He sets this meeting up, unbeknownst to this Samaritan woman or his disciples. She is the lowest of the low in society's eyes and not even the right race to them. And he says, look, I could give you living water so that you will never thirst again. 
He offers her and he tells her about himself. He says, I am the Christ. He tells her plainly, I'm the promised one. And then what's amazing is she believes and receives Jesus as her Savior and Lord. And the very first thing she does is go and get all the other people in the city. You remember when I sang, low places. She goes and gets them. And they come. They find Jesus. Isn't that amazing? But here at the end of John chapter 5, these guys are at the other end of society, the very top, and in education and wealth, and they refuse to believe. What I find very interesting is that when people are saved and then given faith by God, they follow Jesus. They want to share that life with the world where they live. Juxtapose that with that, those that are really uh, saved with these religious leaders. Those guys that say they have life, they have a lot of knowledge. But instead of wanting to share life giving, the life giving message of Jesus, they just invent a religion of stuff that you have to do to earn salvation. Okay, back to Jesus' words. Verse 40 Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now look, it's that word may again. You see that? Underline that in Scripture. He's saying, in me, you would find life and may be permitted to have life. Now, I've got to say something here. I've had people accuse me of of something that I, and it hurts, but I listen. They say they are accusing me of my preaching. They say things like, Paul, when you say you want people to go deep to what? Grow deep. You are just trying to fill people's heads with knowledge And knowledge doesn't save people. What saves people, they would say, and I agree, is believing in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. What saves people is that relationship with Jesus. Now, I take that accusation very seriously, and I ask myself, and I ask God, is that what I'm doing? Am I doing the wrong thing? And because I think that my job as a pastor and the other pastors that preach here is to preach the truths of Scripture that point people to Jesus. Because if I'm just filling your head with knowledge, then it's not helping you. Listen, there are a lot of people that will miss heaven and go to hell that know a ton about the Bible. But missed the saving relationship with Jesus and therefore missed what they were here to do in this life. What I'm saying is that if you simply gain knowledge and not a relationship with God through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's like the deal of sitting on I-25 trying to have your little picnic. It's not a saving relationship. It's not the real thing. Knowledge isn't the real thing. Knowledge itself is not salvation. Faith, belief in Christ Jesus As the son of God, to be your savior, to be your Lord, is what delivers the saving grace. By the way, belief and trusting in Jesus to save you is the mechanism that God uses. As you believe in Jesus as savior and Lord, it is the realization of what Jesus called being born again. You come to believe because you have been born again. But going back to the knowledge thing, here it is. If you were just filling your head with knowledge about God and trusting the knowledge to save you, well then, no wonder your faith is a mess. 
Because your faith would be a mess if that's the case. You've been trusting like these religious leaders, these guys, to have your knowledge save you instead of Jesus and the grace he offers. But if you are saved, I want you to consider this. If I am saved and following Jesus as Savior and Lord, I'm commanded to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and my whole being. Correct? Well then, does it make sense that we can love Jesus more and follow him better by knowing less about him? No. For me, I love Jesus more than anything or anyone. And because of that, I want to know him more completely every day. I want to know him so that I can love him more dearly. The word knowledge in the Bible, in the biblical sense, always implies a growing intimacy in relationship. That's why Peter says this in 2 Peter 3.18. Peter says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Peter tells us that we need to grow in grace Or we could say in relationship with the knowledge of Jesus as both Lord and Savior. By the way, notice here, Peter ends that verse. He says, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. When we know him more, we can give greater glory to him because we can follow him more closely in the way we live our lives. You see where I'm going? All right, back to John. Here we are in verse 41. Jesus continues. He says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Now, when Jesus says, I do not receive glory from people, he's referring to what he just said above this. We talked about the last couple of weeks. He does not get his power from us, his glory from us. We simply reflect his glory back. He gets his glory from God. At first, it kind of sounds like he doesn't want our lives to bring him glory. But watch this. Jesus doesn't need us to bring him glory. As God, he is is totally secure in who he is as the Son of God. Remember, we looked at this last week. There are four witnesses that Jesus has just brought out to testify. There's three. We kind of split it into four, and then I made a fifth one. Okay, number one, John the Baptist, he said. Remember? Two, Jesus' own works. His miracles are a sign of who he is. And then third, he testifies. The Father testifies on behalf of Jesus. Now, we could add a fourth in saying the Scriptures, but that's also saying God Brought to life by the power of the Holy Spirit, they witness. But he has just, and then I would say the fifth would be us. We testify, but he's just brought out these witnesses, right? Jesus says, look, here's my witness, witnesses. He doesn't seek his own glory in them. He doesn't find his need in them met. He wants to shine his glory through those he has saved, but they don't produce the glory. Does that make sense? They reflect the glory. Now, Jesus says to these religious leaders, he says, you, on the other hand, you need the glory from men. You thrive on it. It's what you actually live for. 
Glory is your God. Jesus uses these religious leaders' hearts. He's speaking to them right here. Don't miss this. It's an indictment against these religious dudes because they should have the love of God within them, but they don't. Can't you just feel the tension? There's thousands of people listening in on this, this little conversation, and they're probably two, three yards away here. The crowd's hanging on every word. Jesus presses the attack on these guys and their unbelief. He doesn't pull back at all. And and you know the crowd and his disciples have to have their jaws just hanging open. And his disciples have to be wondering, is he gone too far? Look at verse 43. Jesus continues. He says, I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Oh, Here's what you need to know. In that 400 years of silence between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of Jesus' incarnation that we read about in all four Gospels, there had been several guys appear on the scene throughout that 400 years that declare themselves to be the promised one, the Messiah. Now, these false Christ, or we could say anti-Christ, had uh, led to Many going astray, and in some significant instances, even the religious leaders had followed some of these false Christ. And these guys were were to be the, I mean, the religious leaders were to be the shepherds to the people. So when they were led astray, they led even many more people astray to these false messiahs. Now, what this shows is that at the center of unbelief in Christ Jesus is to believe in anything or anyone who is not the real Messiah. Why? Because false Christians do one of two things. False Christ, I'm sorry. False Christ do one of two things. First, they reaffirm the sin that you have committed and encourage you to do more. They are happy to lead you to hell like a lamb to the slaughter. And or two, these false Christs will give you a counterfeit system to make you think you can earn your salvation if you do enough stuff. And the stuff can be anything they invent. They can make you a social justice warrior. Earn your salvation. You do enough penance penance maybe. If you feed the homeless enough, if you voted for the right things, if you wear the right clothes, you listen to the right music, what's interesting is some of that stuff's not bad, is it? In fact, some of it we could argue is pretty good, but it's when you put your hope in doing these things to save you, it becomes a false Christ. You with me? I've got to point out that as a serious student of church history over many years, it has floored me that countless false religions and antichrists that have come out of the Christian faith. Jim Jones would be one. Now, when I say antichrist, I don't mean the one revealed in the book of Revelation. We've studied that, the big one revealed at the end of the age. I'm talking about little antichrist, little. Now, but simply the tons of false teachers is what I'm talking about that have claimed to be the Messiah, the Christ, and have led people down a road to hell. But listen, the lies that do the most damage 
are the ones that are closest to the truth. Do you know what I mean? I mean, if I handed you a bottle of rat poison and told you, hey, drink it up. It'll make all your wildest dreams come true. You would throw that thing down on the ground, wouldn't you? Why? Because it says on the bottle, rat poison. But if I crushed it up and maybe sprinkled it into a candy bar or a cake, I'd make a really good cake. Or, or a pie. Ooh, I wish I hadn't said that. And, and I covered that taste of the poison And it looks so good, you might eat it even if you, and not realize that it was poison. The lies that do the most damage are the ones that are closest to the truth. Please write this down. Just because someone comes invoking the name Jesus does not mean they are truly Christ followers. Just because someone comes invoking the name Jesus. Jesus does not mean they are truly Christ followers. Jesus calls these false teachers out from his own people who claimed they were watching for the Messiah. Jesus is literally God (laughs) standing before them and they miss it. And worse, they're leading all the other people to hell in the name of God. The reason I'm so hard on this is that it's one thing to make a false religion like Buddhism or the worship of Baal or Baal, 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 and that's bad for sure. But like Jesus does here, I think it's much worse sin to claim you follow Jesus, use all the same wording, but really you've just invented a different Jesus. I think it's much worse. One not described in the Bible and you're actively trying to get people to follow your fake Jesus you've invented. That's bad. By the way, how can you identify these fake religions? Especially when they say they believe the same thing, even using the same verbiage. Well, compare the Christ that they follow with the one revealed in Scripture. Folks, this is one of the main reasons I spend so much time in the Gospel of John. I want you to know the real Jesus revealed in Scripture so that you can fully and completely, uh, that, that when you hear the wrong thing taught, you immediately know it's off. That's off. I'm tempted to go off here even more and, and preach on this, but just know this. It's one of the realizations I had before we started Bentree 12 and a half years ago. It's not okay. It's not okay for so-called good Christian churches to preach a a lightweight scripture or only feel good messages about how to improve your life and sprinkle a little scripture in there. Because in the end, what happens is that people that go to those churches get swept up into a sea of false doctrine that's raging out there. Or they simply leave the church altogether since they're starving for truth and never had real meat and potatoes of scripture served up. They only had cotton candy. They only had their ears tickled. I went off there, didn't I? Sorry. Jesus continues in verse 44 by asking these religious leaders a question. He asked them, he says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Now you've got to get this picture in your head. This crowd few thousand maybe. 
Jesus is having to really lift his voice so everyone can hear. They're right there. They're, they're standing in front of him. These religious leaders are there right in front of him. Jesus is lifting his voice. Jesus is face to face with these false leaders. Everyone's giving them space. They don't want to get too close. These guys have all their fine, ornate uh, clothes on, clean official robes with the big hats. They've got these things called phylacteries. They've got literally pieces of scripture hanging down beside their head and on their wrist here. They stand out in the crowd. They want to be noticed. They are wealthy. They smell good. And that's saying something in a land without air conditioning or deodorant. They are probably well-fed, probably fat, which was a sign of wealth at that time. They are powerful and just dripping with pride. Do you get the picture? And Jesus goes right after the pride he sees in these guys. He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God? Jesus basically says, what is preventing you from believing is that you have put your faith in that you look at one another and puff each other up with the compliments. You go, I like that robe. Man, you look great. He goes, oh man, you smell wonderful. He tells them, you give each other glory and you believe it makes you holy and that entitles you to get into heaven when you die. He says, wrong. Now check this out. Jesus is not simply saying your doctrine, it's a bit off, guys. Just nudge it a bit and then you'll be fine. Jesus is bringing down the thunder on these guys. He's gone way beyond just the healing the lame man on the Sabbath. He's claimed to be equal with God the Father, the ultimate judge of all mankind with the ability to raise the dead. And then this, he's saying, You, you guys right here are the false teachers and you are on your way to hell. But then Jesus takes an unexpected turn in the discourse. At least least I think it's unexpected here. He says this in verse 45. He says, do not think that I will accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Moses accuses you of unbelief. That's kind of unexpected to me. Now, why Moses? Because God had written the Pentateuch through him. Moses was the mediator of the old covenant, a precursor of Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Jesus is saying, look, you guys claim to be students of Moses, but you miss the bigger, much bigger picture, the one Moses was pointing to and writing about, which was me. Now, Moses' very testimony in Scripture stands against these guys in their unbelief. Now, how is that so? Look at verse 46. Jesus says, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? In other words, here, if you do not believe Moses' writings who they had spent their entire lives studying, memorizing, why and how would they believe Christ Jesus' words either? I mean, this is the 
sobering part here. If you reject Moses teaching about Jesus, you will face eternal judgment. Now remember back a couple of times ago when we were studying the story Jesus shares in Luke 16 about the rich man and Lazarus dying. Do you remember that? The rich man goes to Sheol where he awaits his final judgment. Uh, The rich man is in... um, The rich man is in such torment. He's like, he's enduring this torment. The rich man just pleads with Abraham. He says this, Luke 16, verse 27. And he said, then I beg you, father, talking to Abraham, to send him, Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no father, Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now there in verse 31, the reply back to the rich man is, look, if you don't believe the words of Moses, you won't believe or be convinced even if someone should rise from the dead. Well, this is Jesus sharing this story right here. And someone would rise from the dead and that would be him. Now notice as the chapter closes, This whole section we just studied is about their unbelief. And yet an unbelief that parades around like it is belief in God. Jesus' indictment is against unbelief in him as the Christ, as the Son of God come to save the world. Now, it's true that he is directing his words to these religious leaders, right? But don't miss It's not just them. Jesus is directing them at you and me. Because unbelief is at the core of the problem we have, isn't it? Because if we have not placed our faith in Jesus and believed in him to deliver us from spiritual death, we have a sin problem. Sin separates us from God. It makes us enemies of God like these religious dudes because we want sin more than we want Jesus. We want what we want and it doesn't matter who Jesus or anyone else claims to be. This goes right at the heart of reformed theology. Fallen mankind has lost the desire and inclination for the things of God. They just don't want God. He hates God and is at enemies with him. Even if he claims like these guys, no, no, we love God. Jesus says, no, you don't. The Bible teaches that unless God intervenes in our lives and gives us a new heart with new affections for things of God, we cannot believe the gospel. Jesus' words clearly broke through to many that day. Are they breaking through to you? If they are, if you are believing, that leads you to examine your life. Look at the sin that you love as a Christian and kill the sin. Be ruthless about executing the sin in your life. 
By the way, killing sin in your own life is impossible if you're not saved. It's only possible for the regenerate by the power of the Holy Spirit working in them. And notice what I didn't just say. It's not your job to kill the sin in other people's lives. In fact, that's probably driven by your own sin. You with me? And notice what I didn't say either is is at this heart of us, we still wrestle uh, that we're not just sinless from now on. Sin at its heart springs from unbelief. Now, don't get me wrong. What you say you believe is very important. But it is what you do that shows what you actually believe. Now, stay with me. Let me ask you a question right now. As we come to the end of chapter 5 of John, we've seen Jesus really begin to reveal his true identity as the Son of God. He has pointed out the unbelief of guys that say they do believe. So how do you know if you even can believe or want to believe? Here's a couple of uh, important signs. Do your sins, both now and maybe even those that you committed all the way back to your youth and in between, and the sins you committed in the past, do they weigh your heart down? Like, do you feel guilty? Do you feel sad? At the same time, do you see that Jesus is the Son of God, came to save you from your sins? Like, do you see Jesus' ability to take your place, take your sins on his back, take them to the cross, and die in your place? Do you believe that? One more sign I want you to ask yourself. Do you worry that you're not saved sometimes? Let me tell you, It's going to sound funny. Those are all good signs that you are, in fact, redeemed. That you're saved. First, the lost don't mourn or feel sad over their sin. They don't care. Second, they don't care who Jesus is or claims to be. Third, they aren't worried if they're saved or not. But because of being both born again and being raised from spiritual death into spiritual life by the power of the Holy Spirit and having the Holy Spirit living and working within you, the Spirit's job is to point out the sin in your life so that you can kill it. So that you can fight against the temptation. And listen, we fail every day, don't we? Both commission in the commission of the sin and sometimes when we should do something that we don't do. The Holy Spirit is there so you can examine your heart and make sure that you are in the faith every day. If you are mourning over the sin in your life, give it to Jesus, repent of that sin, turn from it, walk away from it. Even if it's for the hundredth time for the sin or the thousandth time of that sin, you are his, rest in his amazing grace. But if you are not in Christ Jesus, It's time to believe. Is this making sense? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you. Believers in Christ Jesus. God, we wrestle with temptation and sin. Thank you for forgiving us through the blood of Christ Jesus. God, help us. 
to examine our hearts to make sure that we are in the faith and not being like these guys, just fake Christians. God, we want the words of Jesus to penetrate deep within us so that we can follow him better, so that we can know him more, that we can get rid of our sin. As you Christians, just pray right now. If you're not a Christian, if you would, just look up here at me and let me just talk to you a minute. You hear me saying words like Christian or Christ follower. I kind of equate those two. I even like believer in there's a number of different words, but here's what they mean is they mean a guilty person who has come to the realization that Jesus is the Christ. He is the son of God. And because of that realization, they believe what Jesus has done there is he has taken their sin all the stuff in their past, even right now sin, and and even sin we haven't even dreamed up yet. And he killed it. What I'm saying is that that mechanism of belief there, that's, that's what happens is our sin is no more. And not just that, but the righteousness of Jesus is given to those that believe so that when God himself looks upon a Christian, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. Not only are they sinless, they see the good things that Jesus has earned in their favor. Now here's what I want to say. Do you feel the guilt of your sin? I still wrestle with sin, temptation, sins of my youth. I look back on, I go, God, what? I'm so sorry. Now, I've been forgiven of that since I was redeemed. And yet, I still mourn the sin. But I say, thank you, Jesus. Would you believe today? Is Jesus who he claims to be, the Son of God? Well, then you've been redeemed. Put your faith and trust in him. Give him the keys to your life. Say, you you can run my life. Go to the Father in prayer and just pray this. Just in your heart. God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for bringing me to life. This realization that Jesus is the Messiah. Maybe you say this. God, you can have all my tomorrows. You be the judge. You be the God of my life. Thank you for saving me. And end your prayer like this. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bent Tree Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentreeChurch.com.